This episode of the Real-Time History Podcast is sponsored by Nebula. Subscribe to Nebula to listen to this podcast and watch all our Real-Time History videos earlier and ad-free. You also get access to exclusive historical deep-dive documentaries like our World War II series 16 Days in Berlin and Rhineland 45 on the dramatic and decisive final stage of the Second World War. Sign up for Nebula at nebula.tv slash Real-Time History Podcast for just $30 for an entire year and support this show. Hello everyone, this is Flo from the Great War Channel podcast, today without Jesse, but with another special guest. Uh, I have with me Wesley Livesey, who did the very audacious thing to cover World War One week by week in a podcast. Uh, the podcast is called uh, History of the Great War, and Wesley did cover the war like we did week by week, and he also has a new podcast. Um, but before we get into all of this, Wesley, why don't you say hi to everyone and tell us a little bit more about yourself? Uh, hello, uh, thank you for having me uh, on the podcast here. Um, so I ha have always liked history, and in 2014, uh, roughly six weeks before I had to release the first episode, um, I decided that wouldn't it be fun to do a history podcast on the First World War in roughly real time. And I specifically remember thinking, how hard can it be? And the answer to that question is very challenging. I have a funny story. Uh, I have received multiple emails that were obviously directed towards a certain YouTube series that happened to cover <laughs> the First World War in a, in a weekly format. Um, It's been really fun over the years having to be like, no, that's not me. I don't make YouTube videos. It's these other people. Uh, go talk to them. Well, uh, it does sound kind of familiar because we kind of uh, came up with the same idea as it turned out. And I had the feeling um, maybe we should talk of it as, as vet veterans of the uh, covering historic events in real time war. Warfare. We should maybe talk a bit about how our experience and uh, covering the war in such a manner, and then maybe also talk a bit about what we do think about the end of the war, because we already, when we were chatting before, we kind of realized we had kind of the same thoughts about that the 11, 11, 18 date is a bit weird. I mean, maybe not weird, but it's it feels a bit like. It leaves a lot of questions unanswered if, if it would be a, a series or a movie or something like that. So, Wesley, you and me have the unique experience of having covered the war over its four and a half year span. What have we learned? Uh, that it's complicated. Um, and, and for me, one of the big... Um, I sort of came into my podcast with a, a basic understanding of the First World War. You know, on some level, it's like, okay, well, it starts in 1914, Western Front, Eastern Front. Um, I think the biggest thing I learned along the way, and this ties into to conversations about what happens later, is the things that happened outside of the big stories, the Western Front, Verdun, and Somme, and Passchendaele, are not only important, but also 
interesting. Like people find them interesting. Uh, not just me, the person who's making the podcast or, or you making YouTube series, but the people who are listening also find them very intriguing when you start talking, when you present them information about these less known areas of the war. Yeah, that, that's also something that that we had realized is I, I think there is two components here. One component is the geography of it, um, meaning, you know, the realization why it is actually called a world war and on how many different fronts uh, it happened, but also in terms of, I mean, you know, not just on land, but also the, I think the, Uh, naval warfare and the submarine warfare component about it also le gets left out quite a quite a lot apart from maybe some of the bigger battles um, and I think the other aspect that for me and for us here at the Great War was what, what was the real aha effect was time because when you cover it in real time You realize, you know, when when somebody says, yeah, the Battle of Gallipoli or the Battle of Badang, they lasted like the better part of a year. And, you know, you kind of realize how long that is by covering it in real time. And if you then start to imagine, okay, every day when I need to, when I'm going to the office, these soldiers had to sit, uh, you know, near, behind or on the front line. And they had to be fat. They had to sleep. They had to be, you know, moved somewhere, um, or they had to fight for multiple days. I think that then it really sinks in, sinks in much more than when you hear the phrase 1914, 1918. So, so yeah. I, I, I think that the, the the time. I think that's also true with a lot of other historical events. I think the time component gets out gets left out a lot because like 24 hours is a very long time. Uh, and and yeah. it's already a long time and you know, like imagining to like doing something like uh, as extreme as a you know human experience can go which is combat for example that you know I, I think that it's pretty humbling uh, to look at a conflict uh, like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I would agree. I think I think it really puts in perspective like the the experiences and uh, something like the battles that went on for months and months and months. But also it's it's you know, you're, you don't have the first day of the some level of conflict every day of the six month long battle. You you have you have lulls like the, the, the battle is still ongoing, but it, it's very different sometimes than than what we typically think of as First World War West. Western Front combat of large waves of people going across no man's land. Um, and, and I also think that one of the one of my firm beliefs coming out of out of my project is that telling history in a chronological order is incredibly important. Like the real time aspect is, is good, uh, but along with that, telling it in order so that you can see how events and decisions and actions influenced later ones instead of sort of, you know, just looking at random pieces on the timeline, um, which is what happens in a lot of history presentations. Yeah, that, that, that's certainly true. I think I, I also think that in a lot of uh, productions, this, um, you, you know, there, there's a certain movement, uh, I think, in teaching history that says, like, we need to go go away from chronology, chronology. But I think what it actually means is that we don't need to necessarily start in the Stone Age and then go all the way through, which is how I learned history in high school. Uh, I think it's totally fair to say, that, you know, start with the French Revolution or something like that. And 
of course you can always say okay i need to go back a bit further to understand this event but um but when you go with you know into a certain shorter period or into a certain like seminal event then the chronology becomes important again yes so when 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 you covered it in in the podcast what do you think did you did you do differently or what kind of freedom did you have compared to us covering it in video and what were some of the shortcomings you would say I think from from a from an audio only perspective um I think there's probably a a, a level of production that I don't need so like video you you have whatever you're showing in the video whereas with me with audio uh I'm a, probably a little more free to talk about things longer or go on random tangents if I want to or discuss topics uh, sort of outside of what the episode is necessarily about because there, there's no need on the back end of that to find a backing image or to to put the the proper text on there or anything um it's i i was attracted to podcasts partially because of the lack of necessary like production after the thing is made like i go through and you know i edit audio like like everybody does but then it's done it's out there and i don't have to um sort of do the extra production that video requires would you sometimes like to have that extra production level to i think uh t trying to describe uh, on a youtube video or on any visual medium you can put up a map <laughs> in audio you can't put up a map and that's like the 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 easiest example of of like some of the challenges of the audio only format in a in a situation like this um But, you know, you describe it as best as you can. And you also kind of have to hope that if somebody doesn't know the geography, that they can pop open their phone and, and find a map of Romania. Uh, hopefully that that will help them understand. Yeah. Uh, I mean, that certainly for us was the, uh, you know, was always a challenge uh, to, you know, you have to find these maps and then build them and see that it works out. And you always, you still do mis make mistakes uh, along the road. And for me personally, I think audio is a more, uh, at least when, you know, when I, I listen to a lot of podcasts privately, I think it, it can be more immersive than, you know, the video experience as we have it now with, uh, with, with YouTube. Um, And I think that's certainly true with uh, when you look at that we used to make much shorter videos and now it's more in-depth kind of thing. And I'd, I personally uh, like to, you know, immerse myself into one topic for like uh, half an hour or so. And I think that's like some of the uh, strengths that podcasting have. Also, I recently bought noise canceling headphones and like you can, I can in my mind enter any kind of like landscape or historic era uh, I want to. Uh, even when I'm on the train and so uh, but on the other hand you realize especially when it comes to I, I think when I when I think about western front battles I have the tendency that I always in my mind go back to the imagery I know from like the propaganda footage and from movies so that mm -hmm. you know in, the, in that in that regard I think maybe you imagining these kind of extreme situations is, is pretty hard yeah I think it It's like a double-edged sword because sometimes, you know, you can be more focused, but then also like I feel some sort of obligation to maybe overemphasize trying to break people out of that propaganda footage mindset because um, 
one of the things I kind of harped on several times was like before 1916, when you're picturing this in your head, they're not wearing helmets. Mm. We showed helmets in the first episode. Big mistake. Yeah. Yeah. And so um, especially like uh, I remember mentioning it several times in like the episodes I did on the Italian campaigns in 1915, where I was like, okay, these people are fighting on mountains, Rocky Mountains with artillery. They do not have helmets. Just think about what that is like. Yeah. Some of the descriptions of what uh, basically stone turned shrapnel does uh, are pretty, pretty gruesome. And um, yes. yeah, and, and I think Italian front is a good is a good keyword because for me, when we started covering the war, I think that was I knew vaguely that there was the Italian front. Um, I think that was one is still one of the most fascinating front of uh, of the war to me, and one of the biggest surprises to learn about it. And also, we went there. Uh, on a trip to Dolomites, and I think that's one of the biggest surprises that I took away from the project. You know, apart from other from more other campaigns like in the Middle East or also the Eastern Front and everything, but like from the sheer like what humans are capable of, you know, doing to each other when they're fighting and and where they are going to fight. I think that from the Italian Front really sticks out to me. I had a similar experience with the Italian front. And also I find it weird that like it's not as well known when it is probably like the perfect distillation of what people think the First World War was, which was just a bunch of guys fighting over square feet of territory for four years um, like that. That actually is the Italian front. Like, yeah, they just beat their head against the line, you know, however many times um, on the Asanzo. Um, and that was a. a truly traumatic experience and and i find it i find it really i found it really interesting to to read about that campaign and to research that campaign um probably more than anything else during the war um and maybe it's partially for for what you mentioned um about why i sort of gravitated towards it yeah i mean there were certainly other surprises as well i you know i never heard about the romanian campaign before uh, as well um and but but yeah there's some some kind of maybe it's also be i mean yeah i, I think it's also because it lasted so long and you had these i mean you know the 12 battles of the isonso you know there's a whole debate about you know it, it's one of these traps you can fall in with the western front as well where you uh, don't where you say okay there used to be x number of this kind of battle did they always try the same thing and did, did, didn't they innovate in any form? But of course they did. From like every battle was a bit different, and they changed locations. And you know, Caporetto was of course the one that's really different. Um, but yeah, I think you, you you can kind of see how it it's a, it's a it's a good uh, microcosm of the war. How it slowly and steadily creeps forward, and new things come on, uh, you know, pop up. Uh, in terms of like how they fight, you know, building like fortifications in a glacier kind of thing. Uh, but, you know, then also I think some something that's usually often overlooked is that the Italians were also working on a tank like the Fiat 2000 uh, kind of thing. So there's really uh, every, everything is kind of there, as you just mentioned. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I think the evolution is interesting and sort of tracking that evolution on uh, what ends up being a, a slightly smaller scale on the Italian front is is interesting. It's like, you know, you see the same kind of mistakes that you see in other places, but they're very clearly laid out. It's like, okay, well, we tried artillery and it didn't do so well, but we tried more artillery and we did slightly better. So the answer is obviously way more artillery. <laughs> um, so which is this the same sort of evolution that that other fronts were going through at the time as well. Yeah, I think that that also brings me back to the time thing I mentioned earlier. I think uh, looking at how the war cha- I mean, if you look at the start point and then the end point of the war, they're completely different kind of conflicts. Like even just even if you just focus on the western front, you know, the 100 days offensive compared to like uh, the Schlieffenplan that's like you know, there's worlds of difference between how the in the conduct of war, tactics, strategy, equipment, all that sort of thing. How how everything is used together. You know, the combined arms are, are offensive. But on the other hand, like trying to, I think trying to find these focal points uh, on a week by week basis, and to say like, hey, this week something changed again because you don't want to give the impression that it's a static kind of war. Uh, I think that sometimes sometimes felt harder. I think especially that felt especially hard in the year 1915, where kind of everybody just tried out whatever they they came up with. It's it's very clear that people do not know what they're doing in the situation that they find themselves in. Is how I would best describe 1915. Um, you know, just a bunch of armies and a bunch of politicians being like well, we're fighting a war and we know kind of what we have to do during a war, but this is different and we're not sure what to do. But we all expect it to be home by now, which obviously doesn't work when everybody expects it. Um, yeah, I, I, I found that quite, quite fascinating. Also, from the from the perspective, and I mean, we do get this, I don't know, maybe we can also talk a bit about your community because in our community, in this year, especially in the year 1915, and also like when the Battle of the Somme and Passchendaele, Came, you know, the in among our Commonwealth and British fans, uh, the lions led by donkeys uh, idea is pretty pre- prevalent still, and uh, you know that Hague was the you know the butcher of the Somme, and that they didn't innovate, and you know in hindsight all of these deaths would have could have been avoided uh, if they wouldn't if they would you know just did the right thing or the smart thing. Uh, is that something that you you uh, saw in your community as well? Yeah, I definitely, definitely have gotten some feedback around that kind of stuff of of maybe people having some what I would call outdated notions. But, you know, some for some people, it's there's no information available that can break them out of those sort of stereotypes. Um, the, the Psalm is a good example. Passchendaele is another one where, you know, there's there's very specific cultural and societal memory about what those battles were and so um it it can be difficult if if you want to try and tell a slightly different story um but but also like there were that's kind of a negative example like there were also really positive examples like you know i got my my best this is jumping forward to after the war but i got a really nice email from um a person from latvia who you know I, i talked about the the events in latvia 
after the war, um, you know, as it's trying to create a, a nation in the whole situation that was the Baltics at that point. And he was he was just like, thank you for talking about Latvia. Nobody ever talks about Latvia in these things. Yeah, we got we got the same feedback for covering certain certain countries. I mean, in the in the beginning, people were like, we had the, the best example in that situation for us was Romania, because in the beginning, people were a bit... Uh, said like ah you know the way we covered it was a bit too superficial in the beginning but then we dug a bit deeper and found luckily found uh, a secondary source in english called uh, the book is called the romanian battlefront in world war one uh, which kind of gave us a level of detail and then we you know with a bit of maps we kind of were able to dig something together leaving out the problem that there's barely any photos of the Romanian army uh, available. Uh, but, you know, then the feedbacks we got then, people were really happy and appreciated that we were properly covering it. And yeah, the same feedback we got from, you know, a lot of Eastern European countries because, uh, you know, for the, I think that's also something that I learned from through the community is, you know, how you consider such a conflict as World War I, um, you know, not only when it began or ended, but also what it meant and what the kind of the the gist of it is. That changes ra radically when you uh, ask someone from a different country. Like if you ask a Polish person about what one or someone from Romania or, you know, from the Baltic states where, you know, even someone from the Middle East, World War One means something very different than it means to like us here in Europe or even to you in the US. Mm -hmm. It's it's a uh, it's it's interesting that, like the global the global reach of the war, but also how that manifested differently in different nations is really interesting. Like, uh, you know, I have listeners from like Australia or Canada where like the first world war is like an, an integral part of their like national creation myth, basically, you know, that that was uh, a big moment for their, for their future nations, uh, was, was this conflict. And so, and so you get a, a a very different perspective on the war depending on who you talk to yeah and i, th I think that that's also something where uh, some some members of our community had to uh, swallow their pride a bit um because we uh, th there we had a bit of i mean i wouldn't i wouldn't call it clashes but we had to explain ourselves in the comments a bit more because like some of our australian and new zealand fans couldn't understand that in 1915 we would cover anything differently than gallipoli like they didn't, they didn't really, you know, in their in their memory of World War One, there were there weren't any other major events in that time period, uh, in mm -hmm. in the war. Certainly not like something like the Great Retreat or August von Mackensen on the Eastern Front. And mm -hmm. I, that that I, but but usually when you explain it to people or when you show them the magnitude of the other important events at the time, then they say like, oh wow, I had no idea. And I think that's really mm -hmm. cool. And and I think that's also something something unique about um, you know, like learning about the war like in this modern internet time because I think that might have not been possible you know just a few decades ago. Yeah, yeah, I think the it's it's like the the there's so much more information and there's so much more really good information out there, but also to find it can be a challenge. So uh, we briefly touched uh, upon it a bit already, um, and I think sticking with the example of Romania, I think it's a good a good segue here. Is uh, we I have a few friends in Romania and visited the country a few times, and I think I saw a few memorials uh, that basically said 1914 to 1919, and then 
you know that's that was i think last time i was there was like late in 2017 early 2018 when we kind of started to think about okay how are we going to end this show should it just end with uh, the with the armistice with a western front armistice uh, or, or or how should it end and then we started to dig deeper and realize okay this finding this end point and this kind of idea of periodization is very very awkward yeah, I went through a very similar thing. Like the joke I always make is like when you're telling a story in order, that story ends at some point. And so like in probably much like you, you know, 1917, 1918, I was like, OK, what where is this going to go? And I had two main concerns, like well, three main concerns, really, like as an American who only speaks English, I was concerned about sources for anything after, which proved to actually not be a huge problem. There's lots of stuff out there if you dig. Um I was concerned that I wouldn't find it personally interesting. You know, this is a personal passion project for me. So uh, if I don't find the information interesting, sometimes it can turn into a slog for me. But also I was concerned that people wouldn't find it interesting. Like listeners would not, you know, find it interesting. And uh, I was very pleased with all three of those where, you know, the sources were available. I found it super interesting, but then I was amazed at how much people really enjoyed post-war content. So this is post, uh, let's say, Treaty of Versailles, or even in the Treaty of Versailles time period away from Paris, um, that there are really interesting stories, really interesting events that are happening there, but also really important events, right? You have you have nations being created and trying to be created and also some failing to be created. And, you know, they're still fighting in a lot of those places. There's a Polish-Soviet war that stopped the expansion of, you know, Soviet Russia into Eastern Europe. And, the, and, the, and that's just one sub-conflict of the greater Russian civil wars. Yes, yes. And so th there's all of these events happening. Um, a, a lot of it is in Eastern Europe. There's stuff happening elsewhere as well. But um, and I think once you start diving into those, like the history is is very interesting and very important. Um, and, and then as I got to the back half of that and this kind of like uh, ties into why I ended my first my History of the Great War, which was my World War One podcast. And I've started a second podcast, History of the Second World War, which is currently, you know, spending two years talking about the interwar period, probably, um, is it does get confusing when you when you get to that post-war period of when does one story stop and another story begin in, in a lot of those in a lot of those places, because history doesn't have nice end dates a lot of the time. It just sort of morphs. Yeah, and certainly for the people at the time, it didn't feel like something ended and something began. I mean, you know, maybe the fighting on the Western Front stopped, but like the struggle for, you know, to make a living or like in post-war Germany or the struggle to, um, you know, there's one, it's one thing to declare independence, but it's one, another thing or to declare a Republic, but it's another thing to maintain it and uh, that kind of thing. Uh, and I think that in the, you know, in the shiny new YouTube world where everybody, I, I recently, we recently made a video where I ranted about uh, this a bit. I think everybody wants to just cut the ribbon. Every, you know, everybody wants to, it's like a, a thing in local politics. Everybody just wants to be seen cutting the ribbon, presenting the new thing that's, that's shining, that's glamorous. But the continuous uh, maintenance and coverage of these things, even if it uh, on paper, uh, on the first glance, doesn't seem to be dramatic. I think that's the thing that actually really influenced the people back at the time and also today. Yeah, I, I think... For the most part, a lot of easily available history stuff 
probably cuts off too early in a lot of cases. You know, it it, it hits the big high notes. Um, it hits the ending high notes of, of various events, and then it just kind of ends. And there were a, a lot of people who were affected by that. You know, even to bring it onto a Western Front context, which is what so many people um, gravitate towards, there were French farmers who sh- sure didn't feel like the war had ended in 1918 or 19 as they were waiting for their homes to be rebuilt um, and the trenches to be cleaned up so that they could go live in their home again. Yeah, and if, for everybody, for everyone who has ever seen pictures of the iron harvest uh, uh, that happens every year in Belgium and France, um, you know, that, that there is still no like line drawn you know where they will stop will when they will ever stop digging up traces from the war there okay um you mentioned your new podcast um could you can could you tell uh, our listeners out there a bit more about it uh, how they can sure. find it and also maybe uh, explain a bit how you want to do things differently with your experience from the first podcast project okay yeah uh um, so the genesis for the new podcast is actually, so what happened was, is I started talking about these post-war events and, um, you know, Eastern Europe talked about the Russian civil war. And what you realize when you get to the Russian civil war is that the Russian civil war does not really end by some definitions, depending on who you talk to and, until like the mid 1920s, right? There's still fighting, uh, happening in, in Russia during that period. But by the time you get to that point, if you start looking at other events in Europe or the world, you're kind of already starting to talk about what would more likely be included in a World War II story or a Second World War story, right? Like Mussolini's already in power in 1922. You know, the Munich um, Beer Hall push by Hitler had happened in 1923 and it had failed you know, epically. Um, and so, and these are events that sort of are for the next war almost. And so that, that's how the new podcast has started. History of the second world war, history of the second world war.com is the website. I'm not very creative with naming things. Um, but, but the big thing I'm doing different now. So in 1914, or let's say in, in 2014, when I decided to do my podcast, I, was woefully underprepared. I had no idea what I was doing. And I just sort of jumped in. I probably only came up with the idea for the podcast about six weeks before the first episode had to go. So it was me. (laughs) It was a good decision, but boy, mistakes were made. Um, And so with this one, you know, I'm sort of taking a much slower approach. Um, Specifically, I was always kind of disappointed in myself that I didn't spend more time discussing pre-war events um, before the First World War, at least in in some sort of summary context or, you know, hey, here's at least an episode on the Franco-Prussian War, because it is important to what these people were thinking going into this conflict. And so I'm trying to remedy that this time. So, you know, I'm I'm spending a lot of time talking about interwar events. Um, obviously, it's it's a little less chronological because, you know, I can't cover 20 years of, of history all over the world in exact order. But it, it lets me talk about um, the political and economic and societal and military sort of themes and evolution during that period before I get to 1939 and things really get going. Um, and I, 
I, as I've went along with that, I continue to think that to, that kind of stuff is so incredibly important because the events of you know 1939 is basically just the outcomes of decisions made a decade before um, that period. And in, in a lot of ways, the, that's the same for the First World War, right? Like, you know, it's uh, the, the events of 1914 were moves that had been, you know, war gamed out on both sides for 10 years or, and so uh, covering the evolution of those decisions, the Schlieffen plan being the, the most famous, but also what the French were doing and what the British were planning um, are, are important to understanding what happened in 1914, which is just the execution of pre-existing plans. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And I think there's definitely uh, room for at least the Balkan Wars uh, project at some point. And, or generally, I think generally the years 1900 to 1914 are, Criminally overlooked, and if I had if I had the decision again, I would also uh, cover that pre-war period a bit more on the on the channel. All right, Wesley, uh, it was lovely talking to you. You mentioned the URL for the second world port, second world war podcast already. How can people find your World War One podcast archive? It is just historyofthegreatwar.com. Cool. That's very easy to remember, but we will also put it in the show notes, of course, and uh, we'll probably give Wesley a shout out on Twitter. And with that, I would say thanks again, Wesley, for taking the time. Thank you for having me. And I wish you all the best for the new project. Mm -hmm. Thank you.